Welcome to Behind the Wings, a new podcast by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum, and we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. And don't forget, our best membership offer is still valid through the end of October. Use the code SEASON1 for 20% off a new Wings membership. Members get free admission to both locations, early access to exhibits, exclusive events, and much more. It's time to go Behind the Wings. Episode 8. Wow. What an exciting journey this first season of the show has been. We've got just a few more episodes for you in this first season, and we're so glad to have you along for the ride. Now, if you've enjoyed listening, subscribe in your favorite podcast app, all right? Leave us a review. Tell your friends. We make this show for and with our community, so your input and support make it all possible. All right, now we're back and excited to bring you a special episode today. I'm your host, Rick Crandall. With me is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. It's good to be back with you, John. What do we have for folks today? Well, Rick, uh, another exciting segment. Uh, we're going to discuss the interesting and radical life of legendary aviatrix Amelia Earhart. I certainly have learned a lot on this episode, and she was the first woman and second person to fly solo across the Atlantic in 1932. Now, of course, a lot of us know her for her mysterious disappearance, but in this episode, we are going to dive deeper into the woman behind the mystery, how she blazed her own path in early aviation, and the legacy she left behind. Our guest is Sammy Morris. Sammy is the head archivist at the Purdue University Archives and Special Collections, where they hold some of the most extensive collections on Amelia Earhart. One being donated by Amelia's husband, George Palmer Putnam himself. Amelia also worked with and taught at Purdue University just before her last flight. Now, Rick, this segment is really cool because of a number of things. I mean, we've got to put ourselves in the 1920s and 1930s to really understand the significance of what Amelia Earhart did at that time. Now, as I've said, we're all familiar with the name Amelia Earhart, but do we really know what she was like? what she believed in. Well, ready or not, we're about to find out. Let's get started. Sammy Morris, welcome to the show. And, you know, before we get into Amelia, let's start with Sammy and tell us a little bit about you and, and your position there at Purdue and all that good stuff. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to to be able to contribute. So I'm head of Archives and Special Collections at Purdue University. We're part of the library. So we have um, a very large collection of papers and memorabilia about Amelia Earhart and her husband, George Putnam. So one of my first jobs when I joined Purdue back in 2003 was the privilege really of going through that entire collection and making sure it was properly preserved and cataloged. Um, Amelia was always like someone who fascinated me from, you know, high school history classes where she was like the one woman you would hear about who wasn't a wife of a president. <laughs> and so um, when I found out that they were looking for an archivist to work with her collection, I was really excited. And that's how I ended up at Purdue. Very good. Yeah, excellent. Well, you know, it's uh, 
Amelia Earhart is a name that almost anybody in aviation has heard. And what was the main interest that drove you personally into the study of about Amelia Earhart? I think it's the same thing that still attracts young people to her today, which is she just has this really um, energetic personality, very adventurous, very bold, very brave, very ahead of her time. And there's something like eternally cool and youthful about her walking around with that short hair and those pants and just really not caring, you know, that she was going to shock some people in the thirties with that attitude, but still somehow managed not to shock people. This is the part that fascinates me the most is that Amelia Earhart was a proponent of things that we still don't have in current society. She was that far ahead of her time. And yet somehow through some sort of sorcery or whatever, I mean, she just had the right personality not to offend people. Mm -hmm. And it gave her this incredible platform, this, this celebrity platform that she used Right. And and speaking of this platform, mm -hmm. we actually found a speech by Amelia in the Library of Congress's American Folklife Center's collection. It's titled A Woman's Place in Science. She delivered this speech as part of a radio broadcast in 1935. And we'd like to play a clip of it now for our audience to hear. I mean, it's just astounding what she was advocating for at that time. Let's take a listen. Not only has applied science decreased the toil in the home, but it has provided undreamed of economic opportunities for women. Aviation, this young modern giant, exemplifies the possible relationship of women and the creations of science. Although women as yet have not taken full advantage of its use and benefits, air travel is as available to them as to men. And lastly, there is a place within the industry itself for women who work. While still greatly outnumbered, they are finding more and more opportunities for employment in the ranks of this latest transportation medium. May I hope this movement will spread throughout all branches of applied science and industry, and that women may come to share with men the joy of doing. Wow. How amazing is that? And, and what a privilege to hear rare audio like that. Yes. An archival studio recording, really, of Amelia Earhart, recorded in 1935 mm -hmm. in a speech called A Woman's Place in Science. Yes. And I really admired that, like, she was this cool young woman who was getting stuff done. And it didn't depend on her husband being president. <laughs> <laughs> You you mentioned her and 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 the word young an awful lot. It, it, she's born in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, raised in Kansas yeah. by her by her grandparents. At that those formulative years, back those Kansas years, right in her youth. Tell me about her then. Was was it all already obvious to see this was the the course she was on? I I think so. Um, there's not there aren't that many accounts of her childhood other than what she's written and what her sister Muriel have written. But um, she definitely had that tomboy adventurous spirit. She had leadership qualities from an early age. You know, she, she was lucky enough to be born into a family where the, the women were pretty liberated. And so she, you know, even though the townsfolk 
frowned upon it. She and her sister would go around in bloomers, which was a really big deal for little girls not to be wearing dresses or skirts. And so, you know, from the time she was a kid, she was offending people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but I think she also had this sweetness and this ability to relate to people that made her extremely good at getting away with being such a rebel. Um, and that's the thing that continues to fascinate me is when we get kids as young as one or two years old coming into the Purdue archives because they're obsessed with Amelia Earhart and they're literally wearing like a little flight suit. And you're just like, there's something about this woman, you know, that continues to appeal to people of all ages. It's just really fascinating. Well, that was recent uh, movie came out also brought it to the more forefront for the current generation. But maybe a, a little background on how did she get into flying at such an early age, you know, and how did she afford to do it? Yeah, those are really good questions. So one thing that I think a lot of people don't know about Amelia Earhart is she had a very interesting mixture of like economical influences on her because her parents, um, her father was a railroad attorney and her mother was a homemaker and they had almost no money ever. But her grandparents, her mother's family had money and her, her grandfather was a retired judge. And so Amelia grew up in this weird world where like when she was with her grandparents, she had an influence and a charmed life. And when she was with her parents, they were poor and kind of the mockery of their family. And so, um, I think there were these dueling aspects of her personality, but one thing that was always there is she loved to have fun and go on adventures. And so she went to the state fair when she was pretty young, maybe about 10 years old. She went to the state fair in Des Moines, Iowa, I believe, and she saw a plane. And according to her recollection later, it did not impress her at all. It looked really flimsy and it was like wires, you know. <laughs> um, but what she was impressed with was seeing a roller coaster, which she then went home and tried to build her own roller coaster, um, <laughs> which she did. <laughs> and so it just, I think the, the interest in flight actually came later. Um, during World War One. she had gone to visit her sister who was in Toronto and Amelia started hanging out at an airfield there in Toronto, and she was seeing all of these veterans and wounded soldiers coming, you know, coming in, walking around. She described in one of her books seeing four men with one leg each walking down the street. And that's when she said, I have to drop out of school and help with the war effort. Hmm. So she decided to become a volunteer nurse. But um, the other thing that happened is she just became really enamored with flight. Like she was visiting this airfield and seeing these war heroes, you know, coming in wounded. She was probably thinking, I wish I could help my country or at least stop the war or some sort of sane thing. And so she told her parents, even though she was enrolled as a as a student at Ogant School in Philadelphia, near Philadelphia, she said, I'm not going back. I'm going to be a nurse. Um, but in the meantime, she started to, she took her first flight up in a plane with Frank Hawks. And I think that's, that happened around 1920 or so, maybe 1921. And so after that, she was really hooked. And so she started taking flying lessons herself, which she took a lot of odd jobs to pay for. 
Um, and she describes some of them in her book, The Fun of It. I think she was like a telephone operator and a truck driver and a photographer hmm. and a stenographer. Hmm. I mean, she did it all. She wow. wanted to be able to pay for those lessons. So. That's amazing. Tell us a little bit about the position on the friendship flight. Yeah. So, so the friendship flight really was sort of a goodwill flight. There was a woman named Amy Guest who lived in London and she owned um, a tri-motor Fokker plane and she wanted to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, but her family would not allow her to make the trip. So she decided what she was going to do is find an American woman who was a pilot and offer her plane to that woman so that an American woman would become the first to fly the Atlantic. So what happened was there was this big race for the first woman to fly the Atlantic. So not only was Amy Guest um, sort of spearheading the efforts with Amelia and George Putnam, there were these other women pilots who were also trying to be the first. And so I think it's one of the most sort of under-researched and fascinating aspects of Amelia's flight history is that there was a lot of secrecy around this flight because there were these competing pilots who were all trying to become the first woman to fly the Atlantic. And what's really ironic, I think, and probably bothered Amelia is that she didn't fly that plane because, you know, if one of the other women had made it, maybe they would have, who knows? I mean, apparently people were so scared of women flying that like they were begging them to take male pilots and engineers and mechanics and navigators on the plane. And so, you know, that is usually what happened. But the reality is that Amelia did not feel that she had earned her fame. And so I think that's why she set out, you know, a few years later to make that flight solo. She also, um, on that flight, her family had no idea, right? She's on the flight heading across the Atlantic. They don't know. She's written some letters that'll you know, if they crash, they're, they're going to get letters, you know, yes. afterwards from her saying she had been on it. But yes. And I love those. I love that you mentioned the letters because those are some of my favorite things in the collection at Purdue. And they literally had not been opened until after she disappeared. She wrote these two letters in her crazy handwriting and they were letters that she called popping off letters, which meant if she popped off this plane into the ether uh, somebody should give those letters to her parents. So she wrote one to her mom and one to her dad. And they are fascinating because it tells you the personality and relationship she had with each of them because those letters are completely different from one another. Like, you know, she's trying to soothe her mother and with her dad, she's like, eh, I may or may not ever see you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that catapulted her to the fame uh, thing. And then there was a lot of records that she said. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that I'm not sure that our audience will remember all the things that she did up until the, sure. you know, the time when we lost her. Yeah, and one of the things I think that it's hard for me to remember too, because I'm not an aviation historian, but the thing is that back then they were setting so many new ones. I mean, the, the history of flight, you know, 1903 to 1920s, this is the time span we're talking about. So, you know, there were constantly new records being set and old records being broken as the technology got better. They could fly the planes higher, you know, they could fly for longer and faster. But I think that um, Amelia showed, you know, from the minute she got her own plane, she was interested in, I don't know if it was for the fun and the thrill, like she said, or if it really was to try to prove what women could do, which is what I suspect. 
But um, she got her plane in, in 1921, I think. And she, yeah, so she set her first altitude record in 1922. And then in 1930, she set a couple of speed records. She was also, of course, the first woman to fly across the Atlantic as a passenger and then the first to fly solo across the Atlantic, which she insisted on doing, even though, you know, there was a lot of pressure for her to take a man on the plane. There's actually in writing in the collection where she says, I will not take a man on the plane because then people will say that the man flew the plane. I will not do it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. um, I mean, of course, her her disappearance, I think, was an unfortunate record as well, because at the time she disappeared, I believe they had traveled the longest distance around the world on a flight. So she just kept breaking records. There were these there were these goodwill flights she made in the mid thirties to Mexico and to Honolulu, and you know between that and the altitude and the speed records, I think she was definitely trying to get women on the books. But unfortunately, you know they kept separate records for men and women in those days. So like I don't even know how those records compare now. <laughs> yeah, in fact, that speed record was like twenty hours, and I. I I think I I side with you, Sammy. I think she was determined that if you looked at a record, you were you were darn well going to see a female name, you know, mm-hmm. next to it, right? And then yeah. go ahead and let the man try to beat my record rather than the other way around. I I, I just I kind of yeah. feel like she might have been like that. Well, and just keep in mind, like if you look at the newspapers of the time, there are literally people drawing cartoons talking about how horrible it is that people, especially women would take their own lives into their hands that way and devastate their families by dying. (laughs) And now for a quick announcement about membership at Wings. If you enjoy listening and want to support Behind the Wings and Wings Over the Rockies' mission, well, here's how. Support Wings' mission and storytelling by becoming a member for awesome perks, like free admission to both locations and free access to other cultural institutions around the world. Join a great community of aerospace fanatics and lifelong learners. Use the code SEASON1 for a 20% discount. That's SEASON, the number one. Offer valid for new members through the end of October 2022. To learn more, visit wingsmuseum.org slash membership. And now, back to the show. Well, you know, it's an interesting time in history. I mean, it was right before the Russian. Talk a little bit about maybe Eleanor Roosevelt, because, you know, she got to fly with her. Right. So I know that Amelia was a supporter of the Roosevelt administration, and at some point, she stayed over at the White House with the Roosevelts. And there are some letters. Um, we have our, on our end what Amelia received, and then they have, I think, as part of the Roosevelt Library, what she sent to them. But basically, they're cute little letters about how, you know, Amelia got up in the middle of the night and was hungry and was raiding the fridge, and then it made it into the newspapers that, like, they didn't feed you at the White House. You know, some <laughs> things like that happening. Um <laughs> But one of the really interesting things was clearly these are two women who are strong feminists in the 1930s. And so they come together for a sleepover at the White House. And Amelia tries to convince Eleanor Roosevelt that she should fly on a plane. So she convinces her. And then she tries to convince her to get a pilot's license. And apparently that's where uh, President Roosevelt put his foot down and said no. But um, there's actually these interesting letters, and I think I, I think the most interesting one is in the Roosevelt Library, where 
basically, um, you know, Amelia and Eleanor are talking about how the president put his foot down and wouldn't allow her to become a pilot. But just the fact that they let the first lady fly in a plane with Amelia. I mean, Amelia wasn't flying the plane. They were both sitting there as passengers, just enjoying the flight. But of course, it made the news, you know, nationally and probably internationally as well. So, you know, this was a strategic friendship. I have no doubt that these women admired each other and really enjoyed each other's company, especially because after Amelia disappeared, her husband wrote to uh, President Roosevelt and to Eleanor Roosevelt and just said, look, did the government have anything to do with this? Does the government know anything about this? And Eleanor was like, no. And if we did, I would tell you. And I really believe that. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. these were they were their friends. They wrote to each other. They spent time together. I don't think she would have just let the government cover up her friend's disappearance or whatever. I know, I know we're going to jump into the disappearance here in just a second, but we touched on feminism a little bit. T tell me about the 99s because I, I just think that's brilliant. I, I'm sorry I didn't know about the 99s before we started researching this. I think it's, it's amazing. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Okay, so um, there were these national air races happening and women were not part of the air races. And so in the late 20s, kind of as a publicity stunt, there was agreement that there would be the first national women's air race. And so Amelia participated along with the other women pilots who were kind of big names at the time. And there were, you know, there were a fairly good number of them, um, considering that no one knew, you know, very much about them unless they'd done something crazy to make it into the paper. Um, there's this really good book. In fact, it's called the Powder Puff Derby. And it's all about this first women's national air race. And the public was, they either were very excited about this race or they were going to shut it down. And there are examples of the women's planes being sabotaged hmm. because people didn't want women to have an air race. Wow. And so after the race, which I think Amelia came in third, I believe Louise Thaden won that race. Amelia and Ruth Nichols began writing to each other. And we have in the Putnam collection at Purdue, the first letter that Amelia wrote to Ruth Nichols, where she said, you know, what if we started a group of women pilots? Would you be interested in that? And so she was. And the two of them basically got the 99 started. And I think, you know, I've read some things that Amelia wrote in later years before she disappeared. So it probably was like the mid 30s, where she talked about how they went through a lot of different ideas for names for the organization. So they were the Whirlybirds and a few other silly things. And then they finally decided, let's just name it based on the number of members. And so once they reached 99 members, they said, OK, we're cutting it off. It's going to be the 99s. But Amelia was the first president of that organization that she helped you know, conceive with Ruth Nichols. And I think it's so exciting to know that and look at the health of that organization today, you know, and see the number of women pilots involved. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, now we have the time period where, you know, she's got this idea of flying around the world. And, uh, and of course, she got to get the funding and getting the airplanes a story in itself. But really, explain to our audience, not only have we not found her, but I mean, what was the cause for the accident? What 
was was the reports that were done afterwards? Because I'd like to hear it from your perspective, Sammy. Sure. And I just want to say, um, which I say every time I talk about the disappearance, that I don't know. Um, so everything I say to you is my opinion and in no way represents Purdue. But my opinion is that there were a lot of things that worked against them on that flight. And it was kind of a culmination of things. So Amelia's goal with this flight was it was going to be her last big flight, her last big stunt to make it in the papers. And then she pretty much was kind of ready, so she said, to have a quiet existence. And so what happened was, um, you know, she had the best minds of her era helping her. She had, you know, meteorologists, Doc Kimball looking at the weather. She had Clarence Williams creating the navigation charts. She had the government helping get um, these little airfields, clearing the birds from the airfield so she could land where she needed to as close to the equator as possible. So all these things are happening behind the scenes in addition to this customized plane where they've pretty much taken everything off the plane they can to replace it with fuel. And so there's this really cutting edge technology. She has all these sponsors. She has, you know, radio navigation. She's got a Morse code key. She's got all sorts of fancy bells and whistles, but she actually hasn't had that much time to practice flying the plane. Um, the plane itself, you know, was delivered from the Lockheed plant to her and she kept it at Purdue until she started that flight. And it was a short period of time that she had to, to really get familiar with that plane. And I think she felt the pressure to finish that flight because in a way, Purdue was playing for the flight and Purdue was the first university to teach flight training outside of the military. And they were also the first university to have their own airport. So in 1935, the president of Purdue, Edward Elliott, recruited Amelia to Purdue. He asked her to be a guidance counselor for the women and to be a, a technical advisor to aeronautics. And one of the first things she said is, Purdue could really help me by getting me a faster, better plane to make better long distance trips. And so the Purdue Research Foundation got together and decided they were going to provide the money to buy her that Lockheed Electra 10E that she disappeared in. And so suddenly her dream of a world flight was going to have to happen really fast because she had to take leave of absence from Purdue to make that flight. And there was a lot riding on that flight. Like they had um, all these sponsorships, like the U.S. Postal Service had put out like special stamps for the flight and they made a big deal about leaving from the Purdue airport for the flight. All these, all these things happening uh, in the spring of 37. Well, so she's flying from California to Hawaii. She makes it to Hawaii. And then as she's getting ready to fly to the next leg of her flight, she crashes the plane on takeoff. Mm. And so in the spring of 37, there was a moment when no one knew would that flight even continue because the plane had to be sent back and repaired. It, could, it was not flyable. And Amelia was shaken and she was like on the, on the phone, on the telegram, on whatever with George Putnam. And there, he's saying, it's okay with me if you don't want to finish this flight. And she's saying, we've mortgaged the future on this flight. It's going to happen. 
And so basically it's their way of saying, we've put all our money into this flight and if we don't get these sponsorship deals, we're broke. <laughs> and so basically the two of them talked and they decided, okay, we are still gonna make this flight, but we've gotta get the plane repaired. So the plane goes back to the Lockheed plant in California. And by the time it's repaired and ready to go, um, her meteorologist expert is saying, you need to reverse the direction of this flight because the wind patterns have changed and you're gonna fly against the wind if you go the same direction. Mm -hmm. So this is the tragedy of the Amelia Earhart flight is they knew from the beginning that the Howland Island landing was gonna be the hard part of the whole flight. I mean, it's a long, complicated flight. But from the beginning, in the correspondence and the memos and the reports, everybody's saying, you're gonna worry about making it to Howland. That's all you need to worry about. And so with that spring flight, she would have been to Howland if she hadn't crashed the plane on takeoff. She probably could have made it. But because she had to reverse her flight and Howland was now at the end and they're exhausted. Um, and, you know, people know Fred Noonan had a drinking problem. There were weather issues. You know, they could not take that plane off at full fuel capacity if there was bad weather. It just wouldn't happen. And so what happened is, you know, they've completed like three fourths of this amazing record breaking flight. They're exhausted. They're in Lay, New Guinea. And Amelia Earhart writes this like seven page letter home to her husband, the most negative letter I've ever read of hers that starts off by saying Lay is a prison. <laughs> and she goes on to talk about how they've been stuck there. They couldn't leave because of bad weather and personnel unfitness. And so like she's fed up, she's ready to get home and they really want to make it home by 4th of July so that they can be part of the 4th of July parades. Mm. And so at this point, you know, it's July 2nd and they're fl flying from Lake New Guinea to Howland Island and they don't make it. And the closest we evidence we have is the reports from the Coast Guard, you know, who were monitoring, they had the Coast Guard was stationed at Howland. Um, you know, they're monitoring the communications by radio. And the, the frustrating thing is with all that fancy technology, Amelia could not hear the Coast Guard. They could hear her, but she could not hear them. And they kept changing, she kept changing frequencies, trying to find them, and they kept staying on the one they had all agreed on. And so we have these amazing firsthand logs from the Coast Guard that say, here's what she said at this time, and at this time, we could hear, we thought we heard the plane. So we went out on the deck and looked, but we never saw it. So they're like actually capturing the signal of the radio frequency, the strength of the signal. And so there's a time when they thought they heard that plane. Wow. Well, it was a tough time and a tough time for the country and of course uh, for Amelia and her family. So any other insights that you learned from the report after the disappearance? because we really want to kind of capture the aspect of what we remember about her today, the legacy of Amelia Earhart, because her name is still prominent. I mean, like I said, anybody who knows anything about airplanes knows about Amelia Earhart. So maybe any other further comments on the disappearance, and then we can close it out with a little bit of an understanding about her legacy. Um, the only thing I'll say about the disappearance that I that I thought was interesting that I did, wouldn't know if unless I had looked at the the collection 
is that, you know, people thought George Putnam had all this money, but he actually took like the money he had left and kept paying for searches after the government ended that search. He paid for his own searches to continue. And he was going crazy with worry, talking to psychics and Amelia's family and everything else. So, I mean, I don't try to debunk anyone's theory about what happened, but... If for people to act like maybe she was a spy, I mean, I'm sorry, he would have known and he wouldn't have been scared. <laughs> and yeah. so I just feel like they ran out of gas and no one wants to admit that because this is our beautiful hero, Amelia Earhart. She couldn't have died that way. She had to die fighting, <laughs> you know? But so I, her legacy is that there are one-year-old girls coming to the archives dressed like Amelia Earhart. Her legacy is that you know, almost a hundred years later, we are fascinated by this woman and still talking about her. And the one time I got really mad at my boss at the library, and this is a previous boss, not the current one, <laughs> is she said to me one time, you're just not going to have any business in the archives when they figure out what happened to Amelia Earhart. And I said, oh, no, ma'am. <laughs> That's when we'll get the serious researchers. That's when we'll stop getting the conspiracy theorists. That's when people will come in to write books about all she accomplished and not be so worried about what happened when she died. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about her. Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, how many WASP, how many women pilots there were, a thousand, right, who, who are flying and, and the, the, the yeah. multiple tasks women had flying. And I'm thinking about all that. And I'm thinking... It's 90 years later now, and it's still less than 10% of the pilots today are women, right? Yeah. It's, is it progress? Yes, I suppose. But I think she would be less than enthused by the amount of progress that's been made. As any good feminist should, Rick. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> 100 years, a lot more should have happened. Yeah. But I will say that I think she would have taken pride in Sally Ride. I think she would have taken pride in the women astronauts and engineers we're seeing today. And, and they are a small percentage, which is really unfortunate. But there are some strong women out there ready to break some new barriers. And I think Amelia would be happy to see that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sammy Morris, for joining us. That was really cool, John, just like you promised at the beginning. Uh, I, I love just hearing about her letters and some of that personal insight that I wasn't familiar with uh, over the years. Um, what did you take away from the show, John? Well, we really got to know the person and not just the legend. And it really is important for us to be able to make that connection to understand the name, the legacy, but also the significance of being a young woman in those ages and to accomplish so much. Yeah, every one of the episodes, this is episode eight, everyone has taught us so much more and it just makes you wanting the next one and that'll be coming up soon. That's going to do it, folks, for episode eight. Thanks for listening to Behind the Wings. Now, be sure to visit www.wingsmuseum.org okay, to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. 
And uh, head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot. It really does. And we appreciate it. And by the way, don't forget, our best membership offer is still valid through the end of October. Use the code SEASON1 for 20% off a new Wings membership. Members get free admission to both locations, early access to exhibits, exclusive events, and much more. All right, we'll see you next time on Behind the Wings.